This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The next mayor of Colorado Springs will be either Yemi Mobilade or Wayne Williams. Ballots in the city's runoff election are due May 16th. Today and tomorrow, we'll hear from both candidates. We'll do this alphabetically, Mobilade first. He's a political newcomer and small businessman. He spoke with KRCC's Andrea Chelfin. Yemi Mobilade, thanks for coming in to speak with us. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. Let's just jump right into it. Why do you want to be mayor? I love this community, and I have the leadership that is needed in these times. Leadership matters. And when you look at the issues that are in front of us, I'm talking about our public safety crisis, our aging infrastructure, and just the overall economic vitality. You need a leader with proven ability to bring the best people around the table to solve problems. And that's what I've demonstrated in this city. And I believe there's a new way politics can be done that doesn't require experience in a ballot. And that is the genius of President Reagan's leadership. In his words, he said, I'm not a politician. I believe much of the problems that troubles us today is brought up by lifelong career politicians. And we need ordinary citizens with the ability to look at these issues with fresh eyes. And that's what I bring to the table. As you just said, you're a political newcomer. Why is now the time to jump into politics, to run for mayor? Look at the times we're in. Division is at an all-time high. People are just discontent with not only political leadership, with government. The statistics show that public trust in government is at an all-time low. Andrea, we can't keep doing the same things over and over and expecting the results to change. I mean, when you look at American history and world history and you see that in every era when the times where society or the culture is disturbed, new type of leadership emerge that bring healing, hope, sanity, pragmatic solutions back into society. And that's what my community needs. At some point, you look around you and you realize that you are the change you want to see in the world And I am inspired by the heroes before me and reformers before me who have made life better for me. And I want to take that baton and move it forward. Mm -hmm. So you're a small business owner. Name something that you're proud of in your professional past that you think you'd be able to apply to being the mayor of Colorado Springs. Absolutely. Um, It's what gives me the confidence of being mayor. I've raised my hand in this community over the last 12 plus years to consistently say, Yes, I want to be a part of the solution. My first business was started because our city and the downtown area needed a cultural place that would inspire our young people and that would keep them in our city because we were losing them. And so that's how my first business was birthed. And we have inspired a lot of our young staff into even greater things. Some of them are business owners that have supported. Some of them went back to school and now they're nurses in our community. Beyond that, I I am proud that I leverage my own business successes to help other small business owners in this city. And the list is many. It's why I have about 120 businesses supporting my campaign. And that's a consistent path for me in this city is to raise my hand and use every vocational decision for the advancement of this city. And something that you regret or view as a mistake or maybe wish you handled differently? I'm a leader that has been tested. I'm a leader that has been tried. 2020 was a hard year for many of us. 
on the campaign trail, I get some people that will criticize me for my association with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, I'm a black leader. I have my own story of being an outsider coming in. And I made a decision that we would support the spirit of the movement of Black Lives Matter before we found out that the organization itself had a lot of troubles and challenges. My intent was always to support this desire for a more equitable and fair society, not the entity itself. And I've been criticized that I'm leading protest, that I am anti-police, anti-law enforcement, which those things are so far from the truth. My heart is to be a bridge builder. My heart is for unity. My heart is to move our city forward. My heart is, can't we just all get along? So sometimes I go back and I think, was that, was that the right decision? I don't know, because we've paid the price. I've paid the price in so many ways for that decision. But that's leadership. You take risk, you correct course, and you make the best of it. And that's what I'm really proud of. It's not the challenges that I've had but how we have made the most of it and the, and the best of it. And uh, so just talk about that for a minute. You know, KRCC sent surveys out to all of the candidates for the general election, um, and you identified public leadership as the number one challenge facing the next mayor of Colorado Springs. Explain what you mean by that and why you think it's the number one challenge. Right. If I remember correctly on the survey, I mentioned the three essential functions of government. Um, according to the city charter, your mayor is tasked with providing a safe city. Your mayor is tasked with ensuring that uh, we have access to clean and safe parks. I'm a parent of three young kids. We depend on the parks and playgrounds. And your mayor is also tasked on ensuring that you can navigate this city well. So public safety, public parks, and public infrastructure. Public safety is at the top of the list for me because that's what we're consistently seeing on the polls, Andrea. My team and I have attended almost 90 meet and greets and knocked on over 25,000 doors. So we hear about public safety. But here's why I add a fourth P, public leadership. We cannot get any of those things done if you don't trust your government, if your government is not transparent, and if you don't feel like your government is accessible. So leadership matters. We are facing historic lows in trust in government. I want to change that. I want to redeem that. I want government to be more transparent. I want government to be more accessible. I want the mayor's office to welcome voices from all neighborhoods. I want families from all pockets of the city to be represented. It's why I, I put that fourth P, public leadership, because we cannot get anything done without good leadership. And it's why I'm running. And speaking about public safety, in this survey that we sent out, you highlighted tools, training, crisis intervention, yes, personnel numbers, and retention efforts. Just a, a blanket. How are we doing? <laughs> How are we doing? Not great. We're okay. We're okay. And this is why leadership matters, Andrea. We're not having the real questions. What you will hear on the campaign trail what you hear from the current administration is recruitment, recruitment, recruitment. Yes. And if we don't close that back door, we're going to be recruiting for the next 10 years. Bottom line. I've learned that morale is low. I've learned that there's some conversations to be had. 
the weight of the badge is heavy. I, and this is making me emotional, because I'm a black leader, so I sit in the middle of my desire to humanize the badge and at the same time be a bridge to our communities that don't trust the badge. If we don't do that work, we're never going to catch up. Our residents are still going to be on hold when you call 911. Some of your calls will not get top priority because we're still short 70 people. I have seen firsthand the realities of the job. and There are a lot of people that don't want to do it. So we have to tell the other side of the story and be able to champion the good work that has been done. And one of the things I want to do is, as an employer of people, I understand what good culture looks like. I understand what it looks like to boost morale. I have made those mistakes. And when I didn't fight for company culture, we suffered for it. And I'm a leader in the arena who has succeeded in being able to build a great team. And I will be bringing those expertise into our law enforcement department because if we do not take care of boosting morale and improving our attrition rates, we will never catch up. That is the bottom line. And how do you plan to overcome this? Right. Um, number one is recognition for exemplary performance. So I mentioned telling the other side of the story. Number two is work-life balance. It's really important. And by the way, that's a, um, that's a generational thing. I, I sat with the Police Protective Association, which is the informal union for our law enforcement officers, and they are having the same workforce challenge as many of us are having in all the other industries. And it's the new generation of workers. Work-life balance is really important. We need to lean into that. I want to explore that. And number three is really important, better training and just more opportunities to develop. Transparency Matters is an organization that the CSP leadership hired to assess our use of force. And one of the things that they did in collaboration with CSPD, I thought was genius, was to do an internal survey and to just kind of get a temperature check on how our women and men in, in law enforcement are feeling. 80% of them asked for more training in terms of de-escalating, in terms of creative ways and innovative ways to address issues. They are actually asking for it. And as mayor, I fully intend to deliver. I hear you. Let me help you in a way that you feel like you can do your job. Because that's, that's what's tricky today is we don't know how to do our job. The community needs us. But the way we've been doing it, we, we seem to get in trouble a lot. So I'm not doing this. I'm out. I don't want us to go through 11 months of worth of training only to train them for a different job, only to train them for sometimes another city because that's happening too as well. We can't keep doing the same things over and over and expecting the results to change. And this is the challenge of my opponent. He will come into office and it will just be simply status quo. We are not going to move forward. In fact, we will move backwards. The public safety challenges that we're experiencing in 2023 is different than what it was 20 years ago. We have to rethink how we respond, who we deploy and what we deploy. And that's the work I want to take on as mayor. So in response to these surveys that we sent out, you also said you support the current setup of the Law Enforcement Transparency and Advisory Commission. And in response to criticism that the commission has no power or influence, you said it's an area of opportunity. What specifically would you do differently? The biggest area of opportunity for me is as mayor to be involved. 
I wanted to remain an advisory committee. I know the challenges around there is no teeth. I'm not quite sure that I, I believe that a group of ordinary citizens with complete oversight is the right way to go. I understand uh, what our residents are saying. We No leader, including the mayor, wants to just have full reign unchecked. I don't want that. Neither does a police chief want that. So the heart of those questions is correct. But my concern is not having qualified professionals. It's the same challenge on the utility side when you hear about the board. You know, uh, we, do we need more energy professionals as board members? It's the same concern I have with the oversight. It needs to remain an advisory committee, and I believe the biggest opportunity is for the mayor to be involved. I personally would be involved in the issues that I'm running on. So these are not just I'm assigning it to a team member. These are items that I will be helping to champion. So I look forward to having the meetings with LETAC to hear the issues, to be side-by-side side with the police chief. I've seen examples of where that has worked really well. I actually, my relationship with law enforcement started when I was a pastor and I was part of the police chief's faith advisory council. It was an opportunity of exchange of information. I remember even one of the first times where we started having conversation around body cams and watching footage and the police chief at the time, Pete Carey, was asking, hey, what are your perspective on this? We want to get this to every cop. That environment, I've seen examples where we've done that well, and I want to get back to those times. And that's what our residents are asking about. Yemi Mobilade, candidate for Colorado Springs mayor, speaking with KRCC's Andrea Chelfin. When we come back, the candidate talks wildfire planning, water resources, and growth. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon, your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at CPR.org support. And thanks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Today and tomorrow, we're hearing from the two candidates for mayor of Colorado Springs. Today, you're hearing from Yemi Mobilade, a political newcomer and businessman who says he brings a fresh and much-needed perspective to city leadership. He's speaking with KRCC's Andrea Chelfin. A little bit of a different aspect of public safety. There's been a lot of concerns by residents, particularly on the west side of the city, about public safety as it pertains to evacuation planning. Some criticize the new system for notifying residents of emergencies as inadequate. What needs to happen to help keep people safe, help them feel safe, and to be able to evacuate in a timely manner? That's a great one. I, I moved to the city in 2010. Two years later, the first fire happened. A year after that, the second fire happened. We all remember those days. It was scary, frightening. We lost a lot of homes. That pain is all too real, and we are still feeling the long-term impacts of that. And that's what you see in the tension today. I've met with the fire chief. I've also spoken with some of the leaders with the Westside groups. I would say there's distrust. That's really the, what no one is saying. 
and I've told this to the West Side group, this is the Reagan-style comment that I'm making, the ability to look at the issues with fresh eyes, with no preference for a group or any kind of special interest to say, what is the best decision for our neighborhoods and how can government shift and adapt? The alerts I've heard are not working. I don't know what that means. Those are things I want to take a second look at, but this community has my commitment that my decisions will be what's best for our neighborhoods because that's what government, that's why we exist, is to serve them. So that's an area of a strong opportunity for me, and I've already started that dialogue with our fire department leadership. And so that's how we've been making those decisions. Here's the thing. I know that as a leader, not everyone is going to agree with my decision. But one of the legacies and the marks of my leadership will be that Yemi listened to us. And Yemi did the hard work of coming to a solution. I didn't like where he ended, but I appreciate him listening to us. And that just comes from being in the hospitality industry. This also plays into the development question, right? You know, you've talked a lot about responsible growth. And in terms of high-density development, mixed use, and so forth, there are a number of proposals in some of our most at-risk areas. And um, I'm wondering how you feel about developments on the West Side, for instance, where it is some of the most at-risk areas. We're making strides. The city, we're leaning into fire mitigation, really important. We see how fire mitigation saved the Skyway neighborhood and the Bear Creek fire. So those are things that I will continue to do. The table retention dollars that we dedicated to fire mitigation, only 5% of that is being used every year. I think there's opportunity to increase that amount because we have to prevent fire at the end of the day. So while we continue those efforts in the west side, the question is around infill. So we're talking about, now we're getting into some growth issues. How do we balance the, the need to grow with the risk of those neighborhoods? Every neighborhood is different. Not one size fits all. As we talk about neighborhoods, the vibrancy of each neighborhood is paramount, and residents will have voice in the decision-making power. Now, let's talk about 2424. Yeah, I'm an economic developer. I'm for growth that is responsible. I am for growth that is sustainable. I am for growth that is intelligent. I do want to see us tackle our affordable housing project. I do want to see development. I do want to see infill. I do want to see density because that's how we solve those problems. But in this issue, the residents have spoken. They have voiced their concern that maybe the time is not now. Maybe we need to look at a different pocket of the city for that development. And so as mayor... That was one of those areas, the 2424 project, that I believe demands the mayor's attention, demands the mayor's visibility, the mayor needs to show up. And that's an opportunity where I will be leaning into. Another thing that has to be balanced with growth is um, infrastructure, roads, transportation. Do you see 2C, which is a a voter-approved tax for the roads, as well as PPRTA, the voter-approved tax, do you see those as enough, keeping up with Oh, gosh, roads? it's never enough. That's just the God-honest truth, Andrea. It's never enough. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, Yemi goes into the mayor's office and now we're asking people for more taxes. Times are hard. But the truth is that we have more needs than we're able to pay for. A $420 million budget doesn't get you very far for the 39th largest city, to put it in, in, a, in a framework people can understand my school district, District 11, has a bigger budget than the city's budget. 
So for 700 million, just to let you know how the difference is. There are opportunities as mayor for me to take a second look to see where we can reduce waste, cut out some of the fat, maybe lean in to some of the core functions of government. Maybe we can free up some excess money to care for our public infrastructure because it's embarrassing. 45% of Colorado Springs roads are in mediocre to poor condition. PPRTA, important measure. I'm glad the voters, for the most part, said yes. It's how we pay for some of our public infrastructure. When it comes to PPRTA, I'm thinking about the public transit. That's a big opportunity right now as our city grows, and we're thinking about how do you move through 200 square miles geographically. Colorado Springs recently approved an ordinance that requires an amount of water to be available before the city annexes more property to build on. Some say that that creates a monopoly for certain developers. I'm just curious what you think of this ordinance and would you have supported it? Right. Um, Some say it creates a monopoly. Some say it's an anti-annexation plan. Some also say it protects our water resources. So you have different perspectives and opinions in it. And they're all valid. As mayor, I need to hear all these. The problem is, what's the real problem we're trying to solve? And Andrea, I fully intend to separate the water issue from some of the development challenges that it's caught up in. All the residents, we are just kind of watching all this happen, and we're trying to figure out, what is it? Can we annex or can we not annex? Do we have enough water or do we not have enough water? These are all questions I intend to answer. So 128% rule, it's a great starting point for the conversation that should have started 20 years ago. Now, it requires time. It requires that we understand the true implications of it. And this is the second thing I'll say. Annex COS is in the works. It's a refresh of a 2006 annexation plan. We need to go back and look at some of the wisdom in that document. It's a framework that helps us identify the policies around decisions of annexation. Because the question isn't, do we annex or not to annex? The question is, how do we get to a place of decision? So 128% is one of those criteria. Is that the right number? Is it more? Is it high? And what other criteria do we need to have before we say yes? Uh, Because people don't want to feel like they're caught up in a monopoly. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to your tenure as a small business owner and how that informs what you would be doing as mayor. There have been a few hiccups, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, There was a ruling against you and your business partner at the time regarding wages at the Wild Goose. That same previous business partner was also accused of financial mismanagement. Right. Now, to be clear, you were not involved in that particular restaurant, and you've split ties with him, is my understanding. Yes. Uh My question is, for you to really make sense out of the company you keep, people will continue to associate these issues with you. Right. What is your response to that? That's a great question. Dr. Martin Luther King has a quote that says, the measure of a person is not who he is in a time of comfort, but how they handle challenges and controversy. And when I confronted my business partner and reported to law enforcement officers and handled that, I was protecting our residents from this person that not only hurt me, but hurt all these other people. I remember a number of people come up to me and saying, you know what, Yemi, I like you. I've always felt like you could do the job. Now, 
I know you can do the job. And this person said, no one wants an untested leader. I'm actually proud, not of what happened. I'm proud of how I handled every single challenges that have come my way. Because, Andrea, that's the everyday job of a mayor. It's moving from one crisis to another. So I'm glad for the experiences that has made me stronger, experiences that has now known, okay, we're not going to repeat that. Okay, we need a better team member. And same with my business, just being able to restructure, move the chess pieces around. And that is the experience I will bring. Because if I'm being honest, most of the things I've done in this city, I have immense success in just getting it done. And these moments in my business crisis, man, it's where just stronger leadership has emerged from. Shifting gears, um, you know, concerning the availability of affordable housing. You know, in 2018, Mayor Southers set a five-year plan to add an average of 1,000. Right. uh, 1,000 affordable housing units each year. City officials say they've been successful in meeting that goal, but the five-year plan ends this year. Is that effort something that you would continue? If I'm being completely honest, I've asked everyone what that number means, and no one can tell me. And this is not on the knock on current mayor, John Southers. I worked for him for three years. I think he's done a fantastic job. There are ways I want to lead differently than he did, especially with public engagement. Expect more town halls, fireside chats, reporting to our residents in terms of what we're doing on behalf of our city and also to listen from them. But when I ask about the 1,000 homes, no one can tell me what that means. Because what I wanted to do was how can we build upon that? Can we take that 1,000 to 2,000? Let's get an ambitious goal. Well, we don't know if we can do that. Why? We don't really know what that 1,000 means. It's, 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 it's a great number. I applaud the mayor for putting a number in front of us because that's what we need. We're 12,000 units short. So 1,000 kind of hopefully calls people to action. But I'm not for platitudes and empty promises. So I need to get a better understanding of what those numbers truly mean. I will tell you what I want to do is to lean into housing innovation. But Android is virtually no housing for attainable. So workforce housing, so law enforcement officers, military personnel, teachers, that's where the gap, and there's no financing available for it. So perhaps we can start thinking about building homes differently. 3D manufacturing of materials for homes, it's a thing. I know the city is we're experimenting with one home right now. Perhaps we can bring that into the solution. Modular homes and other types of development that actually drop the cost of housing down and makes it more affordable. That's one of the things I would be leaning into as mayor. Earlier, you said Southers has done a fantastic job. But you also said that if your opponent, Wayne Williams, is elected as mayor, it's the same old and Colorado Springs will, in fact, actually go backwards. It feels like contradictions to me. So expand on that and please be specific. (laughs) The reason why I said John Southers has done a good job, when you look at what he inherited and he set out to do the things that he said he was going to do, he wanted to take on our potholes. He wanted to repair the broken relationship between city admin and um, city council which was very contentious at the time. And in defense of Mayor Steve Bach, I thought he did his job, was to rip the Band-Aid, usher us into this new form of government. It was a big power struggle, and you needed a leader that just says, we're doing it. John inherits what some we call a mess. And we're stable. We're fine. 
but I don't believe we're great. I have literally heard from people who say my opponent would just be status quo, may not even be a good version of John. The areas of opportunity from the mayor's office where John could have done a better job is just public engagement. I believe John's leadership was poised for where we were eight years ago, and that's why I give him say he did a good job. If John was running today, I do not believe that is the leadership that is needed for our future. It takes somebody with with the unique skill sets that I have to offer. I'm a triple strength leader. That's straight from Harvard Review. And what that means is that I have experience and impact in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and the civic sector to be able to call upon all three areas to the table to solve many of our growing pains. This is one of the many strengths that I bring in this new reality that we find ourselves. A few uh, closing remarks. Ballots are out. I just want to remind our voters um, what's on the ballot. I ask for you to move past all the chaos uh, narrative on both sides of the political spectrum because I'm getting attacked from both sides. And what's truly on the ballot is, is a difference between a city for the few and a city for the many. What's on the ballot is the difference between special interest and your interest. What's on the ballot is the difference between leadership that is one of fear and leadership that is optimistic, hardworking, and just wants to get done. Um, and with that optimism, I believe that even though the problems that are facing our community are tall, it's nothing we can't solve with strong leadership and collaborative leadership that actually puts our residents and families first, your interest. And it's why I'm proud to have run the campaign that I've run. It's hard work, make no mistake about it, to do 90 meet and greets and make a case to the residents and knock on thousands of doors and listen and learn and listen and learn and tweak your strategy and tweak your policies because you're responsive and adaptive to the needs of a resident. That's what you can expect from the future of your mayor. I ask for your vote, but even more importantly, vote for your city, vote for Colorado Springs. Yemi Mobilade, thank you for your time. Thank you. Yemi Mobilade wants to be the next mayor of Colorado Springs. He spoke with KRCC's Andrea Chelton. We'll hear from his opponent, former city councilman and former Secretary of State Wayne Williams, tomorrow. Read both of their interviews at CPR.org and KRCC.org. Special thanks to Abigail Beckman for her help producing these interviews. Ballots in Colorado Springs are due by 7 p.m. on Tuesday, May 16th. When we come back, a decade ago, a high school student in Boulder envisioned a smart gun. Now, he's created one. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. We're hungry for solutions to gun violence. One idea comes from a new type of gun maker. A Colorado company is starting to sell guns that are designed to prevent accidental shootings. The founder has been working on this idea since he was in high school, right here in Colorado, in Boulder to be exact. Kai Klepfer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is actually a welcome back because we first talked to you about this when you were 17 years old. You're 26 now. Yep. What does it feel like to finally be bringing this technology to the market? It's honestly super exciting. You know, this has been a passion project of mine for, you know, over 10 years now. Obviously, having started working on it in high school and then uh, spent some time working on it as a research project, spent some time working on it at MIT, ended up dropping out of MIT, uh, <laughs> founding BioFire, you know, as, as a full-time business out in Boston, then moving back out here to Colorado. It's been a wild journey. Getting to finally talk about what all the work we've been doing and, and the solution that we're bringing to market is just super exciting. Yeah, so you just drop out of MIT, you know. <laughs> Happens, Something most you know. people can't say. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I still don't always recommend it as a as a, a general solution, but uh, in my case, it was pretty clear that uh, trying to do the hundred hour week job of running a startup and the hundred hour week job of, of being an undergrad at MIT, doing both at the same time, is unfortunately just sort of fundamentally impossible. Wow. Well, let's explain the idea. So your company is called BioFire. That's correct. Yep. You're selling guns that you say will help prevent people shooting someone by accident. They're also supposed to help prevent someone using a stolen gun. Explain that. Totally. So what BioFire is building is the BioFire smart gun. So this is basically, it's a handgun that has a built-in biometric lock. Any time that the owner or someone the owner's chosen is not holding onto that firearm and intending to use it, the firearm is fully locked. And at the same time, it's also instantly accessible. As soon as you pick that firearm up, it recognizes your biometrics, either using fingerprint or, or 3D facial recognition, and then it stays unlocked for as long as the user is holding on to it. I think our big focus is in particular around children finding guns in the home, you know, teenagers getting access to firearms, all these use cases where you know, gun owners are, are, are not looking for, for their children or for others to have unintended access to that firearm. What about suicides? Do you think it could help prevent suicides? In certain cases, yes, in particular for teenagers. And I certainly don't think that the BioFire smart gun is, is going to change whatever's happening in that teen's life that's having them look to commit suicide in the first place. But suicides that don't have firearms present tend to be uh, substantially less lethal. And so substantially improves the chance that they might be able to survive that suicide attempt, get help, get treatment, or, or ideally not even look to commit suicide in the first place. So I would say in particular teenage suicides for sure. We've heard from other public health experts, et cetera, that... Uh, we see a potential for impact there. And then to a lesser extent among adult suicide, many of those, uh, a minority, but many of those cases are with folks who are maybe using a firearm from a relative or something like that as well. Um, so any sort of situation where that firearm is being used against the owner's intentions is a case where we think we could have an impact. In the example you mentioned of a teen suicide, so the gun would be owned by the parent. Correct. So basically they can't take their, say, dad's gun and use it because it's for the dad. Correct, yeah. So it, it, even if the teenager got access to that firearm, it would be fully locked and unusable. Well, I'm just curious, can the gun be used by more than one person? Yeah, so the owner has the ability to add and remove other users, and uh, they can even actually like factory reset that firearm and sell it to somebody else if they like. Wow. Now, what are the limits of this? As we think of the big picture of gun violence in our communities, 
what can't be solved by so-called smart guns? The main areas that we do not see sort of major impacts for smart guns is mostly around violent crime. The number one source of firearms recovered at crime scenes is firearms stolen from cars, et cetera. And so we could help maybe slow that in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that BioFire is going to have a significant impact on violent crime uh, and a lot of firearms that are being used in crimes. The area that we're focused on is much more where we're working with the owner, in particular in preventing, you know, unauthorized. And whether that's a criminal who's maybe broken into their home or it's their child, preventing any sort of unauthorized use. The first time we talked with you, the idea was that gun makers would build your fingerprint technology into their guns. Now, instead, you are manufacturing the whole gun and selling your own handguns. Why the change? Over the uh, the 10 years that I've been working on this, it's, it's gone through a lot of evolution, right, from you know, a, a science fair project, obviously, to an uh, independent research project to actually looking at, hey, how could we build a, a viable company around this? The number one concern that we've heard from our customers, the number one question has been reliability, right? Like if I'm going to introduce this additional technology into my firearm, it needs to both be, you know, I need to trust that it's always going to be locked when mm. my kid finds it. But I also need to trust that it's always going to unlock, you know, if I do need to use that firearm in some sort of home defense situation or something like that. And so with that, um, we found that what I would call like a, a retrofit kit, right? Some device or, or technology that maybe is incorporated into a, a traditional firearm or is like an accessory that gets attached to the firearm. Uh, none of those were particularly reliable. And so we ended up building the entire product, the entire firearm, and really actually the entire experience because that's how we felt we could best serve our customers. Um, and in particular, that's actually the only way that I found that we could build a product that was reliable enough that people could actually trust it with their life. Under the hood, it's a pretty sophisticated piece of engineering. Well, you keep mentioning reliability. Yeah. How did you test that? One of the reasons, actually, we moved out here to Colorado, um, obviously growing up here, you know, I, I love the area, but the biggest reason for us was actually the engineering talent in the area. Um, hmm. BioFire has pretty much exclusively hired uh, aerospace and defense engineers. The reason for that is the kind of engineering principles and approach that goes into building, you know, a satellite or a, a defense system that, you know, has significant consequences if it's going to fail is exactly the same kind of approach that we need to bring to this. And so we actually had the, our product in testing for over two years now. A good example of this is, you know, we actually brought customers in. We set up a like a bedroom sort of in our loading dock in our office in Broomfield. We turn all the lights out. We give them a, an un unloaded firearm. And then we'd run them through like basically like simulated threat scenarios, right? We'd simulate like somebody breaking in. Wow. And we actually use that to test a lot of the actual design of the product. Now, I understand that you've been able to get venture capital funding for this company. How'd you secure that? You know, that's been the work of, of a lot of years of relationship building. You know, honestly, I would say, you know, BioFire's approach of bringing advanced technology to a space that really hasn't seen, I would say, substantive innovation, especially in handguns for at least 50 years, is obviously something that uh, meets the kind of thesis of a lot of, of venture investors. Now, you mentioned 50 years since substantial innovation in gun making. So many things in society have smart versions now, like refrigerators, sprinklers, like just about everything. But it's taken a very long time for that to happen with guns. In 2016, President Obama promoted them in hopes that they would help curtail some gun violence. What makes you feel that they'll finally catch on now? You know, we are using technology that literally did not exist commercially two years ago. Like the 3D facial recognition technology that we're using is a very cutting edge piece of technology that was really not reliable enough for consumer use until very, very recently. 
And so we, we certainly are benefiting from, I would say, billions of dollars of technology development, you know, in, in other industries, whether that's aerospace, defense, automotive, consumer electronics, but also, you know, we're super excited about the product that we've brought to market. One of the things that I'm actually most proud of is the team that we've built because, you know, without their contributions, uh, this certainly would not have been possible. You've just started taking orders. Who has expressed interest in this product and who has said they want to buy guns that many may perceive as having restricted use? Our focus has always been on home defense. Folks that are maybe keeping a firearm by their nightstand or something like that are unfortunately those are the firearms that are most commonly found by kids, by teenagers. It's the firearms that are most commonly left unsecured, oftentimes deliberately, because there's sort of this tension between wanting fast access to that firearm in some sort of emergency, but also obviously wanting to make sure that it's secure from your kids accessing it, etc. BioFire does not see this as some sort of panacea or, or like unilateral solution. There are certain kinds of gun owners who, you know, we've seen, I would say, a lot of interest uh, in this technology and this product for. And, and there's others where, you know, it's maybe not as good of a fit. And that's great. Like, we're not saying that this should be the only product available. In fact, we've argued against and lobbied against, like, mandates for smart gun technology in the past. I think there is a, a huge population of American gun owners who see this as very positive, and there's others who don't. And that's great, right? There's lots and lots of other firearms in the market that will probably meet their needs better. You've been working on this for a decade, since high school. A little bit over a decade, yes. Over a decade. Yeah, it's crazy. What kept you going? Like, why are you so passionate about this? I actually started working on this right after the Aurora Theater shooting. And for me, that was really the first time of like, wow, like these sort of events obviously are horrific and impact our community and something we should be doing something about. And so even from the very early days of thinking about it as a science fair project, you know, I, just to be very explicit, like I, I don't think our product would address the particular events that happened at Aurora. But as I started to dig in, I realized that the sort of everyday, you know, drumbeat of, you know, hundreds of Americans who are losing their lives to firearm suicides and accidents, I think is something that is very, very challenging to address via sort of any other method, right? Like regulation, et cetera, whether you support it or you don't, I don't really think from a practical perspective is going to have very much impact on events that already nobody intends to have happen, right? Like there's there's no gun owner I've ever talked to who wants their kid to find their gun. And so, you know, when starting to think about this concept of smart gun, like, you know, back in 2012, like obviously I was not the first person to think about this. You know, James Bond has a smart gun, right? It's been science fiction <laughs> forever. It was for me really, you know, through every hurdle and definitely there's been challenges along the way for sure. But through every hurdle and every sort of uh, next milestone, it's very much been, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? And, and I actually think we can make this happen. And I would definitely say for me, that's been the driving factor of like, hey, like I think we have by far the best opportunity to bring this product to market, to you know make this technology available to Americans. And I think we sort of need to do that as part of uh, addressing a, in some ways, sort of uniquely American challenge. Yeah. And you bring up an interesting point because I will say, even as a journalist, I dug into the public health data for other projects and it was eye-opening to see where the actual gun deaths are. So it's interesting that you bring up that data that we have this perception that it's about the mass shooting or the intruder. But, you know, I actually did a project when I was in Georgia and found that more people in Georgia at that time killed themselves than were killed by other people. So we do have to look into the data and see what the numbers show. Absolutely. And as an engineer and someone who's always been very uh, inclined towards the data side, that was the really striking part. And again, if we can save one kid's life, I, I do think that's an outcome I would be happy about. Well, clearly you have determination. You began working on this as a teenager, and now 10 years later, you have this product coming out on the market. How do you think this issue of gun violence has changed or not changed since you've been working on this? 
I would say my, my unfortunately uh, somewhat pessimistic view is I have not seen much change. I think there's been more and more attention around the issue, for sure. And I think that's certainly a good thing. I would say at the same time, firearms uh, as of 2020 are now the leading cause of death for children and teenagers in America. There doesn't seem to be any obvious trends of, of reducing the number of folks that are being killed and injured by firearms. And so certainly, I think we should be pursuing any solution that actually would have impact. Um, and uh, certainly, I, I think that often the option of technology is certainly one of those solutions. What advice do you have to other young people who want to pursue an entrepreneurial dream? Is there one thing that they should know for sure before jumping in to develop their own ideas? The number one thing for me is iteration and fail fast, I would say. And, and that's a bit cliche, but I, I do seriously think, you know, the, the vast, vast majority, 99% of startups fail. And so I talk to a lot of folks that are, are considering dropping out of college, et cetera. I can't say that's never a good idea because it, it worked out for me. But at the same time, increasingly at a lot of universities, and not just MIT, right? I, I've been involved in some of the programs, you know, at, here at CU in Colorado. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to, I think, get involved in entrepreneurship, get involved in this and learn a lot of the fundamentals around, you know, how to develop a, a, a good business plan, a, a good idea, and in particular, test whether or not those are ideas, you know, from a very early perspective. And so, uh, you know, if you're at college, in, in your college environment, uh, entrepreneurship centers, things like that, or even if you're not, you know, for me in high school, there were still a lot of resources. I was actually able to go to CU as a high school student and participate in some of their entrepreneurship wow. courses and things like that. And so there's a lot of opportunities out there, I think, and they don't cost any money, right? It's, it's all mostly free resources. And that's, I say, definitely take advantage of that. Kai, thanks for talking with us. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Kai Klepfer is the founder and CEO of BioFire, a Colorado company that has started selling smart guns that use fingerprint technology and facial recognition so they can only be fired by authorized users. They are designed to help prevent accidental shootings and suicides. He is now 26 and has been working on this idea since his days as a high school student in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. One big proposal for our big problems with water in the Southwest is to bring some in from a part of the country that has more of it. It rained like eight inches in one day. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis. On the latest episode of CPR's new podcast about the Colorado River, we explore the boldest idea of all. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Denver's East High School will receive a mural that honors a student who was shot and killed near the school in February. Luis Garcia is one of two East High School students to die this year due to gun violence. Denverite's Isaac Vargas reports the donation comes from famed Chicano muralist Leo Tanguma. You've probably seen Tanguma's work all over Denver International Airport. I met him in his living room, crowded in the colors of a Mexican serape, papel picado, and paintings of the Latinidad he's famously known for depicting. It kind of looks like what would happen if a rainbow moved into an old Arvada home. But today, the sun is not shining as brightly in Tanguma's spirit. I am as outraged as anybody else about what keeps repeating itself is one of the reasons for this murals in the first place is to create a certain a higher level of consciousness. East High Dean of Students Raven Porteous met with Tanguma just days before Garcia's funeral, 
but a second shooting on March 22nd delayed the collaboration until after spring break. So we were just talking about, like, what can we do to, like, help our students grieve? Portia saw an early draft of the mural, but like a lot of Tanguma's anti-war artwork, Portia said it was too political for a school. Now, the plan is to incorporate artwork submitted by the East soccer team, a beloved community for Garcia. Mateo Tuller was his teammate. I hope it's a way to make sure that the events of his shooting and his death are still in like the spotlight and it's not ever forgotten. I mean, his life will always impact the whole team and the school. Tanguma says he's adamant about depicting both the good and evil that's transpired in recent weeks. To talk about ideas and issues in our society, I mean, paint our culture and the beauty of our culture and our history, but our current state is one that should be addressed by artists, I think. Artists should have a point of view regarding issues in society. The mural will be sponsored by the Chicano Humanities and Arts Council. Isaac Vargas, Denverite. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.